0: If you're listening to this podcast, it means you're ready, no more than ready, to have a major breakthrough in your business. You're hungry for change and you're hungry for growth, and that's why you're feeding your mind right now with all this valuable information. But to drive those changes, to be really smart about what you're doing, and to make the right choices before you take massive action, you need help from someone who's been there, someone who's going to coach you through it, even just someone to get you started on your journey. That's why Tony Robbins is offering a free one-to-one business strategy session from one of his top business coaches, a $600 value. Completely free, no strings attached. That's right. If you're listening right now, you can go to TonyRobbins.com CEO and sign up for a free session with a member of Tony's team who's helped business owners like yourself overcome their obstacles and set them on the path to success. There are two types of people, those that see what they want, and those that see what stand in the way of what they want. Which type of person are you? This is just one of the questions that leadership expert Simon Sinek challenges you to get real about. Because when it comes to making real change in your life, you have to start with yourself. Why do you get up in the morning? How do you embody the vision you have for your life? And what value are you bringing to the table? Hey guys, it's Annie Yorg, Editorial Director for Robbins Research International. In this episode of the Tony Robbins Podcast, I'm sitting down with Simon to break down his 10 rules for success. Simon Sinek is the author of four best best-selling books. Start with Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't, Together is Better, A Little Book of Inspiration, and Find Your Why, A Practical Guide to Discovering Purpose for You and Your Team. Simon's TED Talk on how great leaders inspire action has become the third most watched talk of all time on TED.com, gathering more than 35 million views. And his unconventional and innovative views on business and leadership have enabled him to work closely with a range of clients, from the military to massive international conglomerates to even members of Congress. In this episode, Simon dishes out the practical advice and philosophical teachings that will get you to think, act, and communicate like a leader because real transformation starts with you. It's about knowing when to break the rules, stacking the deck in your favor, bringing your most authentic self to the table, learning how to be the last to speak, and always striving to embody the values that you set out for others to follow. All right, well, Simon, welcome to the Tony Robbins Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I would love to go through something that we found on YouTube, very interesting. It's called uh Simon Sinek's 10 Rules for Success. And you know, we watched this and we were going through and we're thinking, wow, oh, this is it's it's catchy. There's like a there's even like a still. It's got lots of views. I think it actually right now it has 1, 1. 1.6 million views. Um and we were sort of wondering, you know, it looks like a compilation from a fan, and this is not actually something that you created yourself, right?
1: That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't make that. <laughs> um, but I have to tell you, I am so proud, and I love that somebody did. Um, you know, um, I, I can't say that I'm surprised. I'm grateful, and I'm, and I'm proud, but I can't say that I'm surprised, because this is what happens. Well, everything that I write about and talk about, you know, when I talk about starting with why, how people join the movement and join the cause and people invest their own time and energy to help spread the message, and I'm simply a messenger and people are using my words to talk about what they wanna talk about, you know? So here's somebody who's interested in helping others succeed, here's somebody who's interested in giving, um, uh, serving people and giving content away, and the fact that they found um, some of my work useful in helping them spread their message, that's what's happening here, and I I really love that. and it's happened before, you know. Um, the millennial thing that I did that also went viral online, um, which was crazy to watch happen. Mm-hmm. I, I did an interview, but it was a it was somebody else who cut that one answer out of the out of the long mm-hmm. interview and put it on on YouTube, and then somebody else put it on Facebook, and that's when it went viral. But I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and, and I and I and I absolutely love that. And I and mm-hmm. I think it speaks to the point that when you have a purpose, cause, or belief, when you know your why. Your responsibility is to preach and preach and preach and preach and other people will join you in the spreading of that message. It's the it's the people who are selfish. It's the people who are like, this is my content and you have to pay to use my content. Well then no one else can do it but you, you know? Yeah. So uh, I have a very sort of open source view on my ideas and, I'm, and I love that that happened.
0: Yep. And I love it. It actually kind of goes into one of the first ones. Um, one of your, your 10 rules for success is: yeah, break what, are my the ten, rules. what are my 10 rules? Yeah, for well, the first one, <laughs> according to YouTube, the ultimate authority, uh, is break the rules.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, <laughs> there's a whole idea that um, the rules are there for, for normal usage and the rules are there to sort of help guide us. Um, um, but, but, but we have to know when to break the rules. And so what I, what I totally reject is the flagrant breaking of rules simply to break the rules or people who who are difficult and break the rules and they like to wrap themselves in this, well, I'm an entrepreneur or I'm a rule breaker or I'm an iconoclast, but not when you hurt other people, you know? Um, so I'll tell you two quick stories. Both of them are true. It, it's actually a story that happened in the Air Force. So there's a simple rule in the United States Air Force that U.S. planes may not fly through Iranian airspace, right? Uh it makes uh, uh, It's a good rule. <laughs>
0: yeah, very much.
1: And, and there was a case of one KC-135 tanker where the crew actually got a little lost and accidentally drifted into Iranian airspace, right? Um, this is bad, and they got in trouble. Um, um, there's another story of a KC-135 where there was an, an aircraft that was running out of fuel and they needed to get there, um, because it's a tanker, they needed to get to that aircraft. And the quickest way to get to that aircraft was to just cut cut across the corner of Iranian airspace right sure. as opposed to going around it so they made the decision to cut across the Iranian airspace and and they did the right thing
0: sure right? well people's and lives were at they, risk so I mean that's, that's that a striking force
1: they knew that they might get in, in trouble for, because the rule was broken but the point is that the context matters like technically they both broke the same rule but but not really because the, one of them got lost, and the context of the other one is that they were trying to do the right thing to save the life of somebody else, right?
2: Sure.
1: So, sure. so yes, I absolutely believe in breaking the rules, but not through stupidity, first of all, and also not just through flagrant violation for the sake of breaking the rules. There has to be a moral or ethical cause that's driving the breaking of that rule which is why I believe in the idea of knowing your why, this purpose, cause, or belief that drives us. And we are entitled to figure every which way out to achieve our why and drive our cause, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, and as long as it doesn't get in the way of other people doing whatever it is they're doing.
0: Sure. So do you believe, you know, in a business context that somebody should pre-frame their audience when they go into, say, a meeting and they're brainstorming and they want to do something that's a little bit, you know, outside of the ordinary, outside of the status quo? Do they lead with the why? Does that help people understand and help them socialize to the person's idea?
1: Always, always. I, I rarely, if ever, go to a meeting where I don't say why I'm in the meeting. Sometimes I call the meeting, if it's my meeting, I say, let me tell you why I wanted to have this meeting. And I talk about my purpose and my cause and my vision. I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired to go to work, feel safe when they're there, and return home fulfilled at the end of the day. And the meetings that I will have are because I meet people or meet companies that I believe could help me work to achieve this vision, right? And likewise, if somebody else called the meeting, I'll say, I'll either ask, can you tell me why you called this meeting, and at some point I'll say, let me tell you why I decided to come to this meeting. Because, yeah. and I'll, I'll frame it in terms of my why. So there's always a context. And I'm very open about being selfish about it. Like, let me tell you, I'll say, I'm being very selfish. I want your help to build this movement. I want your help to help me um, uh, build this world that I can imagine. I cannot do it alone. And I think what some resource or you know IP that you have can help drive this a lot quicker, you know? Sure. So sure. I find that being very, very honest um, about something um, and setting the context um, allows gives people it gives people it gives me permission to 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 break rules or do things a little differently for for sure.
0: Sure. So if you have a you know you have a purpose you have an outcome a result that you want coming out of the meeting going into it with that idea in mind I mean that certainly helps people help serve that right. But in a larger in a larger framework, um, do you believe that everybody should have like a mission statement? Cause like, you just stated yours very clearly, but I think if you asked a single person, you know, anywhere you'd say, okay, what's your mission statement? What's your purpose? Um, I think a lot of people would find that very difficult to, you know, to come up with. So what, what, you know, do you sort of help people understand that? Is there a process, um, that you think people should go through in order to get to their why? I, I mean,
1: for sure. I mean, this is what I discovered myself I reached a point in my life where I lost my passion for my own work and people gave me stupid advice, like do what you love. I'm like, thank you. I'm doing the same thing and I don't yeah. love it anymore. Write that on a poster.
0: Yeah. Hang it up. Yeah.
1: Find your, you know, find your passion. Great. Thanks. What am yeah. I supposed to do with that? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, it was through my own struggles that I, I, I learned a, the importance of knowing your why and, and more important, I learned, uh, uh how to help my friends find theirs. And my friends asked me to help their friends find theirs. And I used to do it for a hundred bucks on the side. Absolutely. You have to know your why that's, that's what I wrote in start with why that's mm-hmm. what, that's what absolutely I believe in that. And there is a process. Um, um, and I, I can, there's a couple ways um, we actually have a, a, a thing on our website at startwithwhy.com, which is a why discovery course in September. We have a book coming out called find your why, which takes the whole process of finding your why and, and is a guide to help people find it. But I can also tell you a really fun way that gets you in the ballpark right now, if you like. Yeah. That's, um, so find a friend you love. Um, somebody who, who you know would always be there for you. You could call them at three o'clock in the morning and with absolute confidence that they'll take the call. That kind of friend, right? Uh, um, this doesn't work with spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends or something or, or siblings. That's, those relationships are too close. Yeah. But, but a, a friend that you love and ask them this question, why are we friends, right? And they're going to look at you like you're crazy. When you're like, what do you mean, why are we friends? And then what you do is you switch to the question, what? Ironically, to find why, you actually ask what. Mm -hmm. You say, come on, what is it about me that I know that you would be there for me no matter what? And they will struggle. They'll be like, I don't know. And it's not that they're struggling. It's that we're asking them to put into words um, something that exists in the nonverbal part of their brain, in the limbic part of the brain. And so what they'll do is is they'll start hemming and hawing, and, and you have to play devil's advocate. You, have to, you can't help them and you can't let anybody else help them. And then they'll start describing you. They'll go, I don't know, you're, you're funny, you're smart, I trust you, you're reliable, you're always there for me. And you go, good, that's the definition of a friend. What is it about me that I know you'd be there for ma- no matter what? In other words, you play devil's advocate, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll do the same thing, they'll keep describing you. And this could go on for a while, but at some point they will give up and they will stop describing you and they'll start describing themselves. And this is what my friends said to me. They said, I don't know, Simon. All I know is I don't even have to talk to you. I can just be in the same room in you, as you and I feel inspired. And I got goosebumps. Mm. In other words, they will put into words the value you have in their life and you will have an emotional response. You may well up, you may get goosebumps, whatever it is. They touched a nerve. This is your why. And you can do this with multiple friends and they'll either say the exact same thing or they'll come very close to saying the exact same thing. Because your why is the thing you give to the world, it's the value you offer, and the reason your friends love you is because it's you. The value you offer is the value you have in their lives. And so it's, it's a fun way to get in the ballpark with what your why is.
0: That is really nice, because they help you verbalize. Because like you said, you're too close, you can't quite identify it. They, they, help, you,
1: they help you see what you cannot see yourself. Yep. In, in terms that go a lot deeper than just what it means to be a good friend.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting you mention that because when I think of good friends and I think of people who have known me for a very very long time, um, and so the characteristics that I might have that they that they like in me, they might have noticed a very long time ago and are still around today, but aren't necessarily characteristics that I would pinpoint. So. For instance, you know, Tony actually does this um, or used to do this at a Date with Destiny, which is one of his big events. Uh It's the one that um, was featured in the Netflix documentary, I Am Not Your Guru. And it's this process that you go through where you think back to when you were a child. So Mm -hmm. think back when you were, I mean, some people can remember as far back as five, but say, you know, anytime in that age period between like, you know, five and eight, nine, ten years old. What did you want to be when you grew up? Like, Simon, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: I wanted to be an astronaut.
0: Perfect. Why did you want to be an astronaut?
1: Um, so um, I've done this exercise. You have. <laughs> so I, so I well, my, now you I can share it with answer. everybody,
0: all of this personal stuff. Great. <laughs> I, I,
1: know my, I know my answer. What is This it? happened to me where somebody from a stage asked me, wh- what did I want to be? And I said, I wanted to be an astronaut. But then yeah. from the stage, they said, why? Mm-hmm. And I never thought about it. Mm-hmm. And the answer that I gave is because I wanted to go out to space. I wanted to see the world from a perspective that others don't get to see it. Then come back and talk about the magic that I saw. Mm. And and I realized that's exactly what I do. So I Today. see the world from a different perspective. Yep. And I share with people the perspective that I see so they can see the magic in, in people and in the world that I see. And I want to take them on the journey with me. And I, it sort of dawned on me, it was sort of really powerful that though I never went to space, I'm absolutely an astronaut.
0: And, you know, so then now fast forward fast forward 10 years. What did you want to be when you were a teenager? Was it the same or did it change? Like 16? Um,
1: what did I want to be when I was a teenager? Um, I wanted to go into special effects. I wanted to be a special effects supervisor, and I didn't wow. even know what that was. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to do movie special effects.
0: And what was your reason for that? Do you know?
1: Um, I was a big Steven Spielberg fan, and I loved the stories that he told. Mm. And, um. I don't know, actually. I don't know. But I, I remember being fascinated by special effects. And uh, I was, a, you know, I called a local special effects studio in New York City, and I arranged for me to go visit. My parents, you know, I was just a kid, and my parents, like, took me in and we went to get a tour of the special effects studio and everything. And, yeah, I was into that for a while.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, this might be going out on a limb, but because mine, when I was really young, was um, I wanted to be a storyteller, you know, like like a Homeric. <laughs> <laughs> almost, sitting around the campfire storyteller. So I was born in the wrong era, right? Um, yeah, right? One of the reasons is because I wanted to bring joy and delight in other people. I wanted to elicit emotion in others. And it sounds yeah. like, you know, being a special effects uh, professional, you would bring amazement to people, right? Like people would be constantly in awe and, and wowed by what you're producing in the world. Yes, it, I
2: mean, there's
1: definitely something to do with the story and the amazement in there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, one last one. What about your sure. mid, what about your mid twenties or early to mid twenties? Because those are very formative years, and a lot of people who are first, you know, uh, you know, listening to this podcast, but also kind of now seeing, you know, Tony Robbins as somebody who can help them during that time period. And I know you focus, you know, your talk on millennials was extremely popular, but a lot of people in their twenties are also thinking, "What do I want to be when I grow up?" Even though, you know, in a lot of ways they're technically already grown up. Um, but they're thinking about their mission, right? And they're thinking about what they want to add to the world. So what about you in your twenties, a fighter jet pilot?
2: No, (laughs) Uh,
1: I, 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 I started my career at an ad agency and I knew that I wanted to do something beyond advertising and I wanted to be, I wanted to start my own business. I knew that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I saw myself as a much more sort of as a marketer and, and I had a, a unique perspective or a different perspective on how marketing worked, which is I believed it had to start on the inside. I believed even back then, I believed how, how your employees felt about the company mattered, had to come first. Um, and I remember I wanted to go start my own business um, because I wanted to bring this internal focus to organizations before they focused on the outside. So that, that was very much a driver for me. Uh, I, I was, I'm fascinated by people and throughout my whole twenties. I, I was, I was learning what makes people take and make them buy this and not that. And, and I realized that how people feel inside their job really does matter before it
2: goes outside.
0: Yeah. yeah. So yeah, this one exercise. I, I encourage everybody to sort of do this at home if you're listening. Um, it's really interesting just looking back on what your, what your values, what your mission statement was when you were younger and seeing how what you're doing today is or is not aligned with your why, right? Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. So Simon, you mentioned that you spent a lot of your 20s sort of... Um, taking input, right? Like listening and observing. Um, And one of your 10 rules for success is be patient. The things worthwhile in life take time. Um, And the other one is the be the last to speak, right? So learning to listen. Can you elaborate a little bit on either of those?
1: Sure. So the be the last to speak, you know, we're often told, everybody's told you have to listen more, you have to listen more, you have to be a better listener. You gotta learn to listen. Well, everybody's always telling us we have to learn to listen, right? But at the end of the day, we're social animals, and communication is two ways. We, we, we listen and we communicate. We listen and we speak, right? That's how communication happens. And, and I think it's a better way of framing it comes from a story that I heard about Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela is an important case study in the world because he is universally regarded as a great leader. You know, different people are viewed by different nations in different ways. But, but Nelson Mandela, Mandela was universally, and is universally regarded as a great leader, right? So he was actually the son of a tribal chief. Um, and a journalist once asked him, how did you learn to be a great leader? And he explained how when he was a kid, he remembered going to tribal meetings with his father. And he remembers two things. One, they always sat in a circle. And two, his father was always the last to speak. And I think that is a better way of framing being a better listener which is to practice being the last to speak because so often so often even well-intentioned leaders you know they walk into a meeting and say hey guys this is what's happened here's the problem this is what i think we should do but i'm interested in what you have to say it's too late right so there's a there's a an, there's a there's a skill set that comes from when everybody else is speaking that you don't agree or disagree you don't give away what you're thinking but rather you take in all the input and you ask questions to better understand where their perspective comes from And at the end, not only do you help make everyone feel heard, but you actually get the benefit of all their thinking. Um, And so, so I like the idea, instead of telling people, you need to be a better listener, I I like to say to people, you need to practice being the last to speak. I think it's a a better framework.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, if you're in a group setting, being the last to speak, and sort of you know, getting value from other people and letting them, you know, input their, their thoughts into the conversation. And one of your 10 rules is stack the deck, right? So surround yourself with people who, who want to be with you, be in an environment that highlights your strengths. What if you walk into that room and you're the last to speak, but the people in that room aren't necessarily upping the ante, if you know what I mean, right? So how do you let's say you're a business owner, or you're in a a corporate environment? How do you stack your deck? How do you make sure that the people in that room are going to, you know, have the ideas that that are that are not worth listening to, but that are going to essentially build something greater? Um, what's, what's kind of like a dream team? I mean, Charles Duhigg does a lot of work, right? With, uh, group dynamics and what's the best group dynamic. And I know Google has done a lot of studies on this, but what's your, what's your sort of, uh, approach to, to creating that, that group?
1: So stacking the deck, um, means putting yourself in a position of natural strength, right? Um, Um, it means, um, not trying to, uh, convince people that they need to do business with you, but rather inspire people to do business with you. So, a long time ago when my career was just starting and I had no no books, no TED talk, no nothing, um, I remember you know my work was starting to get some traction and people would introduce me to somebody. Um, and this is a true story. Somebody, I was on the phone with a potential client and he said to me, convince me why I should hire you. And my answer was, don't, right? Oh. Because basically somebody who's forcing me to defend my work, yeah. forcing me to convince him why I should hire me, That means I can flash forwards, and everything I recommend, he's going to say, "Convince me why I should do this," as opposed to wanting to learn my perspective, right? So I'm a great believer of following the law of diffusion of innovations, which is I want to surround myself with the early adopters, the people who believe what I believe. They may not agree um, with the, the, the 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 tactics. They may have differences of opinion. They may not think that I've got a fully baked picture, but they're like, you're onto something. I think there's something really interesting here, and I would love to work with you and see what we can do, who understand that, it, understand that it's an imperfect process. And that's what stacking the deck means. It means working with people who are more likely to work together with you rather than forcing you constantly to defend everything you say and everything you do. In other words, it, it's, it's based on trust and common values. That's what stacking the deck means um it's it's the same mentality as hiring for for culture not just for skills mm. you know you want you it's the same mentality which is you're stacking the deck that someone will work will more likely work out of love and passion and will work hard to solve the problem rather than just keep demanding more money or or criticizing or being a being a thorn in the side just because they happen to be high priced and 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 have some skills that 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 they help somebody else do you know
0: yeah yeah you mentioned so, like if they believe what you believe they'll put their blood sweat and tears into it
1: that's exactly right. So that's what stacking the deck means. It it it, it, it doesn't mean um, um, cheating. What it means is putting yourself in a position where success is a more likely scenario simply because you've surrounded yourself with people who believe what you believe and share your vision and share your values, or you share theirs, um, and working with clients who or who who feel the same way. Um, um, and that doesn't mean that you can't uh, explain your work. But uh, but when somebody says, "Convince me why I should hire you," like then don't hire me, you
0: know? Yep. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, when you work with clients, too, you need to have that same belief system. And I think a lot of times, especially when people are first starting out and they're working with, you know, third parties, or let's say they're trying to, you know, sell their own services, they keep saying yes. Right. And one of the, you know, we have a whole thing, Tony Robbins, we was like the power of no, like learn yeah. when to fire your clients or not accept the job to begin with. And yes. one of the things, and I especially, you know, young people are into this all the time, but they tell people what they think they want to hear. And that's one of your rules is you need to be authentic. So yes. th- in some cases, I think people do that and it, you know, kind of backfires on them early yes. on. But in the yes. long run, it pays off. Do you have any examples of that or, you know, sort of expand on that?
1: Yeah, so being authentic, it's a word that's thrown around too much, right? And so it's lost its meaning. Sure. But what it, what it really means is saying and doing the things you actually believe. And being honest is actually really easy. All it means is you tell the truth. That's it, right? And that doesn't mean you have to be mean. Like people keep talking about brutal honesty. Nobody says honesty has to be brutal, it just hmm. has to be true. Yep. So when somebody says, do I look fat in these jeans, you can say, I like the other jeans on you better. Right. Yeah. It's true and it's honest, but it's not mean. Right. Well, it has
0: to be constructive. Right. It Has to be constructive. It has to be right. For the purpose. Yeah.
1: It, 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 exactly. Right. So, um, I, so I, I think when we talk about being authentic, what it means is not trying to bend ourselves in knots and pretend something we aren't simply to land the business. That's like you know saying you love the ballet because you're out on a date with somebody who loves the ballet when really you hate the ballet. Mm-hmm. It's good. You know, the truth will always be revealed in time. So why not just out with it in the early days, you yeah. know? Yep, absolutely. Because all you revealed later on is that you lied. Yep. That's it.
0: Yep. And then you become untrustworthy.
1: Then you become, well, at least at least somebody will doubt, you know, it, well, it becomes selfish, doesn't it? I lied so I could win the business. Sure. Yeah, that benefits you, but I'm in the equation as well. You weren't trying to help me help me with whatever your service was. That's all you saw me with was, was as a dollar sign. You know, you just saw me as You know, it's like that that Looney Tunes cartoon where, you know, Daffy Duck's really hungry and he looks at Bugs Bunny and he looks like a turkey. Yeah. You know,
0: (laughs) he transforms. Yep. It's all about perspective. I mean, you just
1: just see that's all you see. You see me as a dollar sign. I thought you were trying to help me. You know, so it's 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 in an inauthentic and disingenuous.
0: So as part of that, too, um, is, I believe, uh, accountability, right? So one of your tips is take accountability. You know, you can take credit for the good when you also take accountability and you take blame for the bad. What is um, maybe an example of something in the workplace or um, for a business owner that you think um, where where that principle is is applied?
1: So it's really funny, um, you know, like I have a friend who invests money. And if he does well, he'll tell me it's because he's a genius. And if he does badly, he'll tell me because it's the market. It's
0: somebody else's fault. Yep. <laughs> it's somebody else's fault. Yeah.
1: So you, you you can have it both ways. You can either be a genius or an idiot, mm-hmm. right? Either one of those, I was a genius, I was an idiot, or I was really lucky, I was really unlucky. The market went in my favor, the market didn't go to my favor. But you can't mix and match the logics, you know? Mm-hmm. So you can either be lucky or unlucky, or you can be a genius or an idiot. And I think um, that's all it means, that you can accept credit for when things go well, if you're willing to say, Ooh, my bad when things go wrong, you know, Sure. but I think you have to earn that right. Um, and, and accountability just means you take responsibility for your actions. That's what it means. Um, and so if something goes haywire, well, I mean, you see this in leadership a lot, you know, you see someone struggling and instead of yelling at them, you say to them, you know what, my bad, mm-hmm. I didn't give you enough training or I, I assumed that you knew more than you did. And that's, that's my bad, my bad. I'm so sorry to put you in a situation where you were more likely to, to do badly. I feel awful, as yeah. opposed to yelling and screaming. Yeah.
0: You know? Well, because then they'll go into fight or flight. And then also they'll get defensive. So it's a good way to Yeah. And,
1: and that from look, happening. there are there are times when discipline is fine, and there are times where somebody did screw up. And there are times where but but it's amazing how often that when something goes wrong, it's it's amazing how we the person who's in the position of authority takes no responsibility in that, in that. Like think about hiring and firing, right? We hire somebody thinking they're amazing, they don't work out, and then we tell them that they're stupid and that they're idiots and their performance is down and we fire them. Well, do we take no accountability that we completely misjudge the situation or maybe hire them based on all the wrong factors? Like, as opposed, to, why can't we say, I'm really, really, really sorry, I think I've made a huge mistake here um, because I, I'm, I'm not sure you're a good fit for the organization and, and I fear that you may feel the same way because I I'm, can't imagine you're happy and. Your performance has been suffering, and I can't imagine that feels good. So how do I help you land in a place where you're going to be happier? You know, But instead, we walk in and we make an argument and we ask them to leave and we destroy their confidence on the way out. And we take no accountability for the fact that we had something to do with that scenario.
0: Yeah. And when you do that as a leader, too, and you take accountability and you say, my bad, you're, you're right. demonstrating humility right? And humility, I think, is something that's so interesting today, because we are in a world that has typically rewarded this sort of aggressive masculine dominance, like, I am, I am right, right? Listen to me. So what, you know, are you seeing sort of a transformation culturally and professionally, um, that's starting to reward humility? And what's the sort of psychological effect of when you express humility? What does that do to other people?
1: Well, look, It's embarrassing that I have a career, right? I talk about trust and cooperation and there should be no demand for my work, you know? So let's see it as an opportunity that there is demand for this stuff and that it has been missing and now people want more of it. So it's not that there's been a transformation. We've always been attracted to the humble leader. Um, The humble leader is able to build a more long-lasting uh, organization where the the bombastic command and control they may have results but in the short term uh, it, it, it's just it just can't last you know yeah. so it's not like I'm it's not like this is a new idea that humility is a good thing we've seen it throughout history um, and we're drawn to people who are humble because it makes us feel like they're human you know yeah. Um, yeah. it also empo- makes us feel empowered that they they that they sort of give us the opportunity to help mold our own careers and our own jobs and our own lives and make decisions in our own work rather than, than them always knowing more and them knowing best. Um, you know, we, 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 of course we like people who are humble because they allow us to, to exercise our own, our own strengths and, 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 uh, talents. Um, so that's not a new thing, but I am glad that, that there is a movement to reject many of the, Business philosophies that were popularized in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. which is what you're talking about. Remember, the 80s and 90s were boom years of relative peace, and many of the business philosophies that were espoused back then that are still normal today were for those times. The whole idea of being bombastic and greed is good, mm-hmm. and and these sort of overly masculine sort of uh, aggression uh, um, in management style, even the whole idea of using mass layoffs, you know, using people's livelihoods to balance the books this year. On a regular basis, did not exist in the United States prior to the 1980s. It did not exist. Um, so the good news is, is what what did, what work then cannot work now. And I'm glad to see that people are starting to be open that maybe those business philosophies that were so so uh, that are still common today, um, that were popularized you know over over a generation ago, are, are losing favor because, quite frankly, they just don't work anymore.
0: Yeah, and there's so much transparency now too. I mean, if you are doing something. Um, you know, as a business that you know th- that is something that is not in alignment with what people are demanding now culturally, um, you get called out on it. I mean, we hear about it every day.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and people are, are are patient with you if if they see you as humble and honest. Um, you're allowed to make mistakes. It's when you present yourself as perfect that every slip up you're it's over. You sure. know.
0: Sure. Yeah. So presenting this idea of perfection, and you talk about this um, quite a bit in terms of social media, you know, people have this filter, um, and everything is, you know, unicorns and rainbows on on social media, Um, and they're constantly comparing themselves to other people. But one of your rules for success is that you should not be using others as a benchmark for success, because the goal isn't to be the best every day right? That's like a finite construction that the infinite Correct. player knows that there are ups and downs. And sometimes you're ahead and sometimes not. So right. can you talk a little bit more about how you need to outdo yourself and not other people? Sure.
1: So there's no such thing as winning business, right? You can win a game of baseball, right? Um, you can win at tennis because the game is over, you know, when, the sc- when whoever has the, the higher score at the end of however, whatever the period is, and that's it. We all go home, the game is over. But there's no such thing as winning the game of business right? Yeah. The game is infinite. And so I get a kick out of listening to, uh, uh, people talk about beating their client, beating their competition or mm-hmm. being number one or being the best based on what agreed upon score, based on what agreed upon metric, based on what agreed upon time frame. you can be ahead and you can be a behind, but you can never be the best because it's a temporary, it's temporary. Sure. Right. Um, and so it's a fool's game to uh, to try and outdo your competition especially when you're picking your own metrics and you're picking your own timeframes. So I may say I'm going to I was the best this year, but over the course of 10 years you're, you 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 you're way 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 behind. So what I find is that the 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 best longest lasting organizations that have the most success over time um, understand uh, as you said sometimes they're ahead and sometimes they're behind. Sometimes their product is better and sometimes their their competition's product is better. But the goal isn't to necessarily beat their competition. It's to outdo themselves. And that doesn't mean that you ignore your competition. You can absolutely watch them and you can make tactical changes. But, but it's it's crazy to make a strategic change because of a reaction that your, your competitor does.
2: Right.
1: Um, you're, either, you're either always going to be Johnny come lately or you're going to be all over the place. And you're assuming that they're running a rational business. You're assuming that they know that they know what they're doing. We have no idea of their internal politics. Not to mention the fact that you don't even know who all your competitors are. You're picking based on the ones you know. That's not everyone, and that doesn't include all the startups that you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. So, so who are you really competing against? Abstraction, right? So we can drive ourselves nuts. Um, so I, I, I found that the, the, the best organizations look to improve the, their systems, to make their systems better than how they operated the week or the month or the year before, and to make their product better than it was the month or the year before. And that the way they hire, the way they communicate, the way that everything they're doing—they're trying to make better than themselves. It's a constant state of improvement, just like human beings. Wouldn't you hate to be friends with someone who's trying to be better than you? Yeah. Would you rather be friends with somebody who's just trying to be a better version of themselves?
2: Absolutely.
1: Organizations are exactly the same. There's if when 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 organizations are devoted to self-improvement, they outlast over the long term, and they're happier and they're happier organizations. They're more fun to work for as well, and there's more room for innovation.
0: Sure, because they're trying to out-innovate themselves, right? Not the other people or other And companies. they
1: never, ever, ever believe that they're the best. Because yeah. if you're the best, then the game's over, right? Mm-hmm. Now complacency sit sits in, mm-hmm. and you end up defending your position as opposed to advancing your position. Um, and and no one no one wants to be in a defensive posture. So it's it's a uh, it's a much more productive way to live and build an organization to try and do yourself. Yep. And when you don't, you can be okay with it and be like, all right, let's try again. Let's figure out what what didn't work there and let's fix it for the next time, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something that you can also, you know, if you have a culture of that and you sort of share that internally, then each individual person, you know, I like that you say that businesses are essentially just like individuals. They're constantly trying to be the best version of themselves. But what's nice is that there's probably a trickle-down effect. When you run your business that way, then people will look at themselves that way within the organization as well. So you'll get people, you know, sort of pursuing higher levels of professionalism or improving, you know, their own strategies and tactics um, because they see that at a macro level.
1: That's 100% true. Or, uh, you know, the culture of the organization is, is how the people will operate and interact in the, inside the organization as well. So, uh, an organization built on self-improvement means all the people themselves will be devoted to to improving themselves. It means communication flows uh, much easier. It means there's less passive aggression. Um, there's, la- there's 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 uh, there's more effective confrontation, or we like to say care uh, <laughs> Did You
0: just make that up.
1: I didn't. I, I stole it from someone. But I absolutely. <laughs> <didn't>. <laughs>
0: you know, all the best things are just stolen from other people, but then maybe just you know shared a little more, verbalized, maybe some more succinctly. Um, You know, it's interesting you talk about, you know, competition and, you know, internal culture sometimes being um, not necessarily healthy. Um, And today, the combination of that internal and external pressure equals stress, right? And Tony has a quote and he says, you know, stress is just what achievers call fear, right? But it's true. There's a lot of fear out there and people are so stressed um one of your rules for success is that in order to deal with that escalating stress and pressure both from inside and outside is to train your mind to be able to deal with it how do you do that
1: um so
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're like this is is this one of my rules
1: (laughs) yeah is that one of my remember i didn't put this together but that's a good one yep um i wonder what i said um so how do you train yourself to deal with stress? Well, number one, um, we, there's, there's actually science behind this, um, which is we're social animals and we need each other. And so the stronger our relationships, the better capable we are to deal with stress. This is why um, people who are in happy relationships actually live longer than, uh, in, than single people, believe mm-hmm. it or not.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. This is why happy people have lower rates of cancer, heart disease, and, and diabetes than, than, than people who aren't happy. Sure. And, it's and, the secret and the biological... to
0: the longevity is happiness. Exactly. Yeah,
1: Exactly. And the secret to happiness is relationships. Um, it's when we feel that someone has our backs. It's when we, somebody feel, that we feel loved and we get to love. Um, it, it, actually, it actually is a good thing. And there's there's something to be said for coming home stressed and being able to say to somebody, can I tell you about my day? And they sit there and they listen. And you feel heard and you get it out. You know? Um, uh. So so relationships are are key to dealing are key to dealing with 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 stress. And and the other part is if you're in a leadership position you have to take responsibility for the people who work in your company, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know people talk about work life balance. Well work life balance has nothing to do with how much yoga we do. Yeah. The the imbalance we feel is that I feel safe at home but I don't feel safe at work. I don't oh, trust my boss.
2: Yeah, and never thought of that way. Yeah.
1: That, that's the imbalance, and so you can do as much yoga as you want. It won't make that imbalance go away. It's sort of a it's sort of a, a temporary fix. You feel good in the moment, but then you, you, but the imbalance doesn't go away. People who have balance find that they have really good relationships in their personal lives, and they have really good relationships with their colleagues and and their superiors and subordinates. You know,
2: yeah.
1: Um, and we and it's not like we. It's like a family. It becomes a family. Sure. You know, we, we actually love each other, cry together, care about each other fight, fight like brothers and sisters where we, we may scream and yell, but nobody fears losing their job, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it just, it's a very healthy environment. So that's, that's what the imbalance is. Um, and then if it's simply a question of workload and people who love you, they'll tell you you're taking the next week off, you know?
2: Um,
1: so you, you can, we can, so I I think where we, where we train ourselves to deal with stress, um, that, that's a big part of it. But I will tell you one story. I did think of another story as I was waxing philosophical here, which is about that I talk, um, I was watching the London Olymp- Olympics and I remember watching, um, you know, they would always interview the athletes either before the finals or after the finals or, you know, whatever it was. And it's amazing to me how many of the, the reporters ask the athletes the exact same question, right? They would all ask, were you nervous or are you nervous? And Almost all the athletes, I think 100% of them actually, they all gave the exact same answer. And
0: they said no. They, they all said, said no. no.
1: Okay. I was excited. They all said no. I was excited. Right? And if you think about what are the what are the characteristics of of nervousness? Clammy hands, your heart starts pounding, you start projecting to the future, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what are the what are the characteristics of excitement? Clammy hands, your heart starts pounding, you start projecting to the future. Sure. Right? These these athletes had learned to reinterpret the symptoms of nervousness as excitement. And so I remember I was on a plane once and there was some really bad turbulence and I got nervous and I actually said out loud to myself, this is exciting, and I actually relaxed. It was kind of incredible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so if the you're meaning a, of
0: words? Yeah, you know, you transform words. your words, so it's, it's,
1: yeah. It's, re- it's reframing
0: sure. the
1: symptoms and experiences we have into something that basically is the same thing. So the next time somebody gets stressed out or nervous at work, Literally to say out loud to themselves, well, this is kind of exciting. Like, how is this going to work out? This, this could be very new and different, you know? Mm-hmm. This is exciting. This could be a new kind of journey, you know? Um, so I think reframing is a big part of learning how to deal with stress.
0: Sure. I think, you know, we also have a system here. It's like a, like a buddy system. Um, it's not just an accountability partner, but it's also somebody who can help you reframe. So, you know, I think th- what you said about building deep, meaningful relationships in the workplace, that seems pretty rare, these days. Um, And I think you even mentioned too, it's a lot of it starts with the fact that people walk into meetings and there's a phone on the table and it doesn't matter if it's, if they're paying attention to it or not, it's an immediate obstacle. And so people don't have the level of, you know, some people would say small talk, but small talk does matter. And it allows people to build relationships over time. When you have those types of relationships, then you have somebody who's going to call you out. You know, let's say they see that you look a little nervous. They can also help you reframe that into a feeling of excitement.
1: Or simply asking, are you okay? Yep.
0: <laughs> I know. It's amazing. I don't think, yeah, I don't think people actually do that anymore. How are you feeling? And actually, and,
1: yeah. and, and, and actually care. That's mm-hmm. the important Asking how you're doing and actually caring is how yeah. a friend of mine defines great leaders.
0: Yep. Are there some things that leaders can do, small things, um, you know, other than the removing phones but uh you know because it, it's so popular these days to call culture building uh things like oh we're gonna have a foosball tournament or we're going to happy hour and they they almost seem like things that should be creating these relationships but in some ways they almost stand as an obstacle to them are there some things that business owners can do you think that would help cultivate those relationships or create an environment where people can feel like they can build a family at work
1: So we have to understand the interplay of uh, um, intensity and consistency, right? Mm -hmm. You can't go to the gym for nine hours and get into shape. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But if you work out every single day for 20 minutes, you will absolutely get into shape, right? The problem is I don't know when, right? So intensity is like going to the dentist twice a year. But if that's all you do, all your teeth will fall out. You have to brush your teeth for two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the evening every single day. Now, the question is, is what is brushing your teeth for two minutes actually do? the answer is nothing unless you do it every morning and every evening every day mm. and we and it's much harder to measure right but we know 100% it matters and it works i know 100% if you work out every day you'll get into shape i know 100% if you eat healthy every day you'll be a healthier person i know this 100% the problem is i don't know when and the worst part is it works at different times for different people right so it's the same thing here the foosball tournament the, the company picnic yeah, the, holiday the, mm-hmm.
0: the holiday party holiday
1: party they're all good and fine, but those are acts of intensity.
0: Yeah.
1: And what really matters are the acts of consistency. The tiny, tiny, tiny little things that by themselves actually do nothing, but in combination and accumulation actually are more significant in creating a healthy culture. Things like saying good morning to each other. Things like putting your phone away when somebody's talking to you. Things like going out for lunch with each other on a regular basis without cell phones on the table, right? Just let's go out for dinner, you know? Things like asking someone if they need help. Uh, Things like um, if you're the last person to have a cup of coffee, you make the next pot even though nobody was there to see you do it. Things like roaming the hallways if you're in a position of leadership and just checking in on people, seeing if there's anything they need to do their jobs better. Things like practicing empathy, that when someone's, Uh, struggling, instead of walking into their office and saying, your numbers are down for the third quarter in a row. We've had this conversation before. If you don't pick up your numbers in the fourth quarter, I don't know what's gonna happen. Instead, you walk into their office and say, your numbers are down for the third quarter in a row. We've had this conversation before. Are you okay? I'm worried about you. This is not like you, right? Like these little, little things that by themselves do nothing. As I said before, asking somebody how how they're doing and actually caring about the answer. But if you do all of these things, or at least a number of these things and many more, what starts to happen is trust builds, cooperation builds. It's like friendship, it's like falling in love. You know, buying, buying flowers on Valentine's Day and remembering their birthday is not what makes somebody fall in love. It's the little, little, little things you do on a daily basis that make somebody realize and discover, oh my God, I've fallen in love. But I don't know how long it takes and I don't know what day it's gonna happen. And the worst part is, once you are in shape, once you are healthy, once you are in love, you actually have to keep doing all those little things every day. You can't stop. You can't get into shape and then stop working out. You have to get into shape and then keep working out. So it's the same thing. It's the, it's the consistency. You, you need it to get to the point where the healthy culture and you need it to stay healthy.
0: It's interesting because all of these small things, I think philosophically, we understand that. And a lot of business owners use that same approach when it comes to business. So, you know, if you asked one of, you know, Tony Robbins' business clients, he said, what do you think is more impactful, running a giant million-dollar ad campaign or making these 10 changes, you know, Increasing operational efficiency in your manufacturing center by staying open fifteen to twenty minutes later. Um, Balance, you know, right? There's all these small little. He calls them two millimeter adjustments. You know, hiring one more salesperson in an emerging region for your for your nationwide business. I mean, these are the things that make the long term impact because, like you said, just like social interactions, they compile over time, and it's almost like you know, the, making a snowman, right? And you're rolling the ball and it gets bigger, bigger, bigger. At the end, you have this amazing result, but it takes time to get there.
1: I'll tell you a funny story. So I spoke at a um, conference of all the people who run loyalty programs, right? So they run all the points and loyalty programs for hotels and airlines and all that kind of stuff, right?
0: Wow, yeah, that's a big, and big, strategy. Yeah, it's big.
1: It, yeah, and so I um, I told a story where I, I shared a a a, a, a really a, 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 a story of, of a major airline that really, really did a bad job, like really bad. And I stood on the stage and told this horrible story about this airline, right?
0: It, and everybody right. listening right now is probably going through a laundry list of all the I airline know. gaps that have taken place in the past year. Hmm, and I wonder which one it could do. Whichever
1: airline you're thinking of, that's the right that's one. That's it, okay. <laughs> so, so, so... I, what I didn't know is the head of the loyalty program for that airline was actually in the audience, right? Wow. So um, a few weeks go by and an email arrives saying, hey, Simon, I heard you at this conference. I actually really uh, appreciated all your words and everything you said. And if you, if you would, we would like to gift you whatever the highest st- st- you know, status is on their airline. And I said, that's very kind of them. And so I called, the, I called this person back and, to thank them personally, and I said, I said to them, listen, I'm really grateful that you're giving me this status, you know, but, but I know why you're giving it to me. You either want me to feel nice about you so I'll start telling nice stories about you, or you want me to shut up telling the bad stories. I said, here's what I don't understand, right? You are trying to solve the problem of somebody like me going out there telling stories, bad stories about your airline, right? By taking care of me and showering me with gifts, I don't even fly your airline, right? I said, here's a better way of doing it. Why don't you do the hard work of taking care of your customers? And then I won't have any stories to tell. I said, or even if what I suffered was an anomaly and I, deal- I still tell my, my, story, uh, my story on the stage, everybody will just say, oh, you probably just had one bad experience. They're not like that, right? Like if I tell a bad story about Southwest Airlines, nobody's going to be like, yeah, everyone's going to be like, well, you probably just had a bad experience, mm-hmm, right? Because they're consistently words, good, yeah. If you're just consistently, why don't you invest in little, little, little things about taking care of your customers, and that's how you can cut me off at the knees, right? Yeah. Not, not by showering me with gifts. Um, so it's, it's exactly what we're talking about here, which is, unfortunately, it takes longer. and It's the consistency. We don't know exactly when it's going to work, but it's much more effective, and it lasts. the impact lasts much longer. So I'm all about I'm all about focusing on, on, on doing the right thing lots of times rather than trying to to, to, to sort of cheat the system and, and, and just do it once or twice with big things.
0: Sure. Yeah. Looking at sustainability as opposed to the, the quick fix and that sort of, right. you know, hacking mentality.
1: Yeah. And the intensity is fine. Like the big stuff matters, but not 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 when it's the only thing.
0: Right. Well Simon, we've gone through your 10 rules of success and it's obvious you have a lot more. <laughs> so um, I would love to maybe point your uh, point this audience toward where they can learn more about your past work and also you know you had mentioned a few upcoming projects. Um, so maybe just a little reminder of those.
1: Sure. Uh, you know, I'm in all the usual places, LinkedIn, Facebook, instagram twitter what else websites you know all all the usual
0: yeah
2: just
0: google your name
1: uh, yeah yeah, i'm in all the usual places uh we have a great website startwithwhy.com that has a whole bunch of resources and it's got a great media library so if you want to go see i think we have a compilation of simon's greatest hits um um and a couple books coming out i have a book called find your why Mm -hmm. uh comes out in september uh, which I'm really excited about. It great. sort of picks up or start with why I left off. You know, I made the case Wonderful. for this thing, the why.
2: Yeah.
0: And now
1: this book um, brings it to life.
0: Great. Yeah. And, you know, for all the business owners listening out there, these are the types of things, too, that make great gifts um, for your employees. I mean, I think it's one of those things that, um, if employees feel supported in understanding their purpose and how it is in alignment with the organization, um, that does build a a long lasting relationship. So, um, I know there was, there's actually somebody right here who, who was gifted, uh, start with why. And he was like, wow, this is, it, it shows, it shows a lot of thoughtfulness, um, and respect for that person's sort of individual, um, aspirations. So just something to throw out there for you guys.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I actually wrote a book to be given as a gift. There's a book I wrote called Together Is Better.
0: Oh right. The the the, the it's very visual, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the first page says to and from. It's actually I actually wrote it to be given as a gift. Wow. To be given as a gift to people who you want to say thank you to inspiring you or people you want to inspire. So yeah, I'm all about I'm all about the acts of gratitude. Yeah.
0: Great. Great. Well, Simon, thank you so much for your time. This has been extremely insightful and enjoyable. So
1: Oh, thanks so much. Feelings mutual. Thank you so much.
0: All right. The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckhite. Annie York is our editorial director and occasional host. The podcast is produced by Carrie Song and Tyler Culbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Special thanks to Diane Adcock for her creative review. Copyright Robbins Research International.